1: what people do and saying who should and shouldn't have kids. And this, and this is the exact opposite. It's saying that regardless of, you know, where, you know, where you're starting in terms of a specific condition, you should be able to choose and make every decision about, and have like reproductive autonomy and reproductive choice.
2: I'm working on this, this sort of matchmaking pool, almost like a OG hinge of people just meeting via friends of friends. No one can ghost if you're ghost, you get kicked out basically.
1: Nice. I like that. That's really good. That's really good. It's a insane, upgrade to be able to have a healthy life right like so many people's lives are they would self describe as destroyed or derailed by you know some serious illness that they have so to me like the motivation that i have and like what what i think is like an an super exciting future is like one where pretty much anyone who wants to have a kid regardless of what disease they have their partner has is able to have a kid
0: This week on Upstream, I sit down with Noor Siddiqui, founder and CEO of Orchid, which recently announced their embryo whole genome sequencing capabilities. We discuss this major breakthrough and its implications, as well as fertility, dating, and more. Please enjoy the conversation. Noor, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Eric. This is awesome.
2: Noor, for starters, what is Orchid, and what did
0: you you set out to start?
1: Yeah, so basically we had this uh, pretty pretty badass accomplishment uh, last week, which we announced, which is that we built the world's first whole genome sequencing for embryos. So that's a really huge deal because embryos historically have had very little information. So um, you sequence a really, really small segment of the genome of an embryo, like less than 1% versus what ORCID is able to do is sequence 99%. So over a hundred times the amount of data on an embryo. So like the analogy that I like to use is kind of like a table of contents um, versus uh, reading the entire book. So basically you have 23 pairs of chromosomes organized from smallest to largest. So chromosome one is the largest and then your sex chromosomes are the smallest. And um, basically what the old school genetic testing did is it just told you, do you, does your embryo have the correct or incorrect number of chromosomes, which is kind of like, does it have a table of contents? Does it have the correct number of chapters or not? Which is cool, it's really important, right? You'd want to know if your book was like missing an entire chapter. Um, most uh, chromosome abnormalities, like having the wrong number of chromosomes is not compatible with life. So really critical, useful information for sure. But it's really, really low resolution compared to uh, reading an entire book, right? Imagine doing spell check on just the table of contents versus doing spell check on the entire book. So that's really what the massive upgrade is that Orchid's been able to offer. And um, yeah, I'm just insanely excited about it because within one generation we have the ability to slash incidence rates for you know so many major diseases. So right now in the U.S. there's 30 million people with a rare disease. So it's kind of a really weird dichotomy because it's called rare. Um, because they're individually rare. So individually rare disease means there's less than 200,000 people who are affected, but in aggregate, they're really common. So if you add up all these people, it's 30 million people. It's 10% of Americans have this rare genetic disorder where there's this orphan drug problem where... Drug companies have no incentive to design a gene therapy or really any treatment for these people because individually none of them make economic sense to solve, right? It's sort of like, it costs, um, you know, a billion dollars to bring this to market, it's a clinical trial, and there's literally not enough people who are affected versus with ORCID or with basically IVF plus, um, you know, whole genome sequencing, you have the ability to um, avoid all of these, you know, thousands of catastrophic diseases at once. So um, it's something I've been obsessed with for like, I don't even know, I guess like 10 years now, and the company has been working on it for several years. So it feels really cool for it to finally be out in the wild. And it's not just, um, you know, in a research setting, which, which it has been for many years, it's actually, you know, commercially available. So it's available at IVF centers all across the country. Some cool news about how that's going hopefully announced in January, but it's, it still just feels like such a big deal to just, uh, have it alive.
2: Say say more about going from 1% to to 99%. Like, how exactly did you guys do that? And why hasn't that been done before? Why couldn't that have been done before?
1: I mean, I guess what I would say to other people is like, never underestimate what you can do if you're obsessed with the problem. So... Anyways, a little, a, little, a little bit tuning our own a little bit, but basically there's been billions of dollars invested into single cell sequencing over the last decade. It's just that most uh, companies and people have been interested in a specific problem of whole genome sequencing of embryos, right? So people have been in- interested in it for you know cancer tumor sequencing, blah, blah, blah. And we were ba- basically, I guess, kind of like the best and first team to just obsess over the engineering challenge of, okay, you have... four to six cells from a trophectoderm biopsy. So an embryo, the outside of it is called the trophectoderm. It becomes the placenta. Those are the few cells that we receive. Um, So we just obsessed over everything from how the embryologist sends us that sample, the buffer, the chemistry that we use, the bioinformatics, the variant analysis, um, the pipeline, everything to maximize the uh, DNA yield and then the quality of the um, data that we receive so that we can do the sort of clinical grade whole genome. So there's that basically just obsessing over the problem for multiple years uh, and basically kind of aggregating a bunch of um, kind of advances in each of those specific domains. And then I guess the second piece of it is just, uh, yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? There's been a lot of work done and we kind of uh, were able to, you know, pull it all together into, you know, a specific use case that I'm obsessed with. And it, it is also more expensive. So when you, when you sequence less, you also have to pay less, right? Because you're by definition the cogs on that is, is lower. So yeah, I guess my feeling, just because of how I grew up, my mom has a condition called uh, retinitis pigmentosa. She started progressively going blind in her thirties. To me, like seeing her life get totally hijacked, you know, losing her independence from basically this being unlucky, right? Having this typo that, um, you know, fortunately her siblings didn't have, but she had, um, just made it, to, to me, it's like it, incredibly inexpensive, right? Because if, if that's the cost, Um, And it's not just that thing that that we're able to screen for, right? It's like thousands of of things simultaneously. So yeah, no, I guess it just really just depends on framing. So for, I think for people with a family history, people who have any of these conditions, it's like a complete no brainer. I think if people are lucky enough to like have a completely healthy, nothing going on uh, in their family, nothing that they've ever even seen a friend have, I think that for them then it it might be um, perceived as more expensive. But um, yeah, I think those are the two things. Basically willing to go the like, you know, extra mile from like the uh, engineering and the chemistry and the bioinformatics perspective. And then also like wanting to build the best product, not the most affordable product, I
2: guess. Yeah, and but th- could this not have been done a decade ago? Like, wh- What was the breakthrough that like enabled this in some capacity?
1: Yeah, so the other thing that's interesting about a decade ago is that even if you could get a whole genome readout a decade ago, it wouldn't actually have been that useful, right? Because over the last decade now, since sequencing adults, right? Because blood and saliva, you know, you have um, a lot more DNA, like in a sample than you have in, you know, a few cells. So even as like just sequencing, has gotten cheaper and more of a commodity. These databases have gotten larger where you can say, okay, this typo causes this disease. And you kind of get more and more evidence for that as more people have that specific um, typo or or variant alteration. So yeah, it's it's actually kind of crazy, right? It's sort of like you have to have a, a confluence of so many different technologies. All of this stuff has to aggregate over yeah, literally two, dec- two decades since the human genome project even emerged for this to be useful, right? Because yeah, yeah, totally. I think 10 years ago, if you had a whole genome, then you didn't really have very much actionable stuff that you'd learn about it. So for the monogenic conditions, there wouldn't be as many that we uh, know about as we do today. Right now, we're, we know about neurodevelopmental disorders like epilepsy and autism and cancers and pediatric onset cancers and Heart defects and skeletal defects and so many different things. And then you also, obviously, the polygenic side is I think is another really exciting development of it's not just a single gene that causes a disease, but it's um, the cumulative effect of you know millions of variants, where it's more of a you know machine learning like risk score as opposed to a like yes or no this embryo has this you know specific typo that you know we know is is going to cause a disease that is not very fun to have.
2: Let's give more background to people who are kind of new to the to the to the science of this. I guess say more about the impact or significance of the of the polygenic um, you know, s- scores or just like how it works in terms of you you know sort of multiple genes or one gene et cetera. Why don't you give a just a bit more background for people to kind of wrap their head about? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think like a really approachable example that people know a lot about is probably like BRCA or breast cancer, right? So there's like a Single gene, BRCA uh, makes you you know, much more likely than the average person to develop breast cancer. I think certain variants, you're talking about like a 70% plus um, lifetime risk. So that's one gene that makes you much more likely to develop a disease. Um, So that's monogenic form. And then the alternative is that you have a polygenic score. So for breast cancer there's also polygenic scores, which means that you have millions of variants. You have like a a model where you have um, hundreds of thousands of people who've been sequenced. Some of them who have labels that say, okay, they got breast cancer at what age. And then you build a model that says here are the variants that um, increase your risk for breast cancer. So um, I guess kind of the way that you can think about it is like one thing is like very, uh, interpretable in the sense that you have it or you don't, right? You have this specific uh, monogenic variant or you don't versus you have a risk score, which is telling you you're, you know, three times, four times, five times as likely to develop the disease compared to the base rate. So I think the base rate for breast cancer in the U S is like 12%. So um, basically the highest percentile of the polygenic risk score, maybe if you're the 99th percentile of risk, you might have like, you know, four or five times the risk for uh, breast cancer, which doesn't, it's not as intense as having the BRCA mutation. So the reason why I was hesitating a bit on this example is that it's not quite the best example because BRCA is still a, predispositional gene, right? It's not a diagnosis of a disease versus I would say the most canonical example of a monogenic condition would be something like Rett syndrome or cystic fibrosis or something like that where having that gene means you have that disease. Yeah, it's not not this like risk score, right? Where it's kind of like smoking where if you smoke, you're not guaranteed to develop um, lung cancer. It's sort of like a modifiable risk factor. So I guess like to put it in context, I think for Lung cancer, if you smoke like five cigarettes a day, I think you have like an 8% chance of developing lung cancer by age 80 or so. Um, so I think that's, that's actually a, a, I think a kind of good thing to put in context because you know smoking, everyone agrees is really bad, um, but it actually is only like 10 to 15 times the base rate of developing lung cancer. I mean, not to say that 10 to 15 is low, but um, that lifestyle intervention is on par with some of these polygenic risk scores. So type one diabetes, you know that's something that you get diagnosed with uh, like under 10 years old, and the, the polygenic risk scores for type 1 diabetes are you know around um, you know 15 times the baseline risk of the disease. So I would say TLDR, the difference between monogenic and polygenic. monogenic is if you have this gene, you know you have that specific syndrome or condition versus polygenic um, is a much newer type of testing that's that's more quantifying your risk, quantifying the genetic component of your risk in the same way that, Lifestyle factors like um, smoking is not a diagnosis of lung cancer; it's a risk factor that you should be aware of and like probably try to you know pull the cord on. Like I think everyone agrees you shouldn't smoke; it's kind of a bad idea.
2: Yeah. Continuing sort of the definition of terms and background here, another thing that really enables this is 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 sort of the the growing popularity of, of IVF. Why don't you give some some background there as to what is IVF exactly, or how does it work? Why has it gotten more popular? You know, what's the significance of it, et cetera.
1: Yeah. IVF is so cool. I don't know. I just like the first time I went into an IVF lab, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Like, Literally come there and there's like, this is a place where they make humans, right? Like millions of people owe their existence to IVF. They wouldn't exist today because of it. Uh, But yeah, I guess like context on IVF, like IVF is like traditionally used to treat um, uh, infertility, right? So Like I think everyone we know, most people like want to have kids later in life. So I think the average age of a first time mother in San Francisco is like 33 or something like that. And a geriatric pregnancy is 35, right? So basically the condition for everyone is to become infertile um, over time. And basically as we've, you know, pushed the age where we want to have kids later and later, the set of people who are um, infertile or Um, have some sort of fertility issue um, happens earlier and earlier. So I think a lot of times there's a lot of blame that's put on women of, oh, you know, they're the reason why um, they have the couple has to go through infertility. But if you ask uh, fertility doctors, they usually say something like the attribution is like a third, a third, a third. So a third is female factor infertility, a third is male factor infertility, and a third is unexplained. Um, I feel like that's probably the least satisfying of like, we don't know why you're here. Everything looks fine, but you know, you need to do IVF. So yeah, that's like the set of folks who are doing IVF right now. Yeah, I think basically maybe my uh, controversial or like hot take is just that, um, you know, sex is for fun and IVF is for babies in the future, right? Like since everyone's already planning more Um, you know, freezing eggs is like the exact same thing as freezing embryos. The only difference is that if you freeze eggs, you're not doing that final step of fertilizing and creating embryos. Um, so basically people are already electively freezing their eggs. People are already electively, um, doing IVF for things like, um, you know, wanting to, you know, balance their family. So they have like, you know, three boys and they want to have a girl finally. So people are already electively, um, doing IVF, people are already electively doing egg freezing. And I think that a much more legitimate reason to do it is that you want to minimize the chance that your, your child has a, you know, horrible condition, right? Like these are things where, you know, there's babies that don't live for the first year of life. They end up in the NICU. There's no treatments. There's nothing that we can do to save them. I mean, yeah, I guess kind of a controversial or like spicy take would be that, you know, it would be, um, you know, irresponsible not to get this information and um, let your child have a condition that you otherwise could have prevented. So I don't know, I think that's maybe a, little, maybe a little spicy for folks right now, but I think it's a really cool and I think sort of unstoppable future, right? Like, I think we might hesitate a bit as, um, you know, I think that the fertility coverage in the U S isn't as good as it should be. Right. In other countries, it's a lot more affordable than it is in the U S it doesn't have to be as expensive as it is here. But I think, you know, I think that would be like a really amazing end state, right? Like we moved from home births to hospital births because it, you know, helps, uh, you know, maternal and fetal mortality. And I think that hopefully, like, I mean, you know, this would be like a, a similar level of, um, Benefit to families is that hey, there's just like huge category of conditions that we don't know how to cure, we don't know how to treat, but we do know how to detect at least, and like let's detect it at the absolute earliest stage where parents can actually intervene and um, you know make a difference and you know have a healthy baby.
0: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to turpentine's industry-leading newsletters like our new daily ai newsletter emergent behavior or media empires you should but that's not what i'm here to tell you about the platform we use to power these newsletters is called beehive and it's excellent first of all it was started by the same early team who helped build morning brew into a 75 million dollar newsletter business and they built beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, the Lindy newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up upstream listeners with a sweet deal. Get twenty percent off for three months with code upstream. Visit beehive.com. That's b e e h i v dot com to get started. It's fascinating
2: this idea of sometimes when a thing is introduced, it's immediately stigmatized. But then as you kind of indicated, what might happen here too is it's stigmatized like not not to do it. And so I don't I don't know if birth control or condoms followed that similar sort of path, but there certainly are a number of inventions that in the beginning people thought oh this is this is crazy P- people won't do it or they shouldn't do it and then to not do it or you know self-driving cars perhaps is is a is, is another example of people are trying to stigmatize it now but once people kind of intuit how many deaths it prevents uh you know it'd be stigmatized to to not use uh a, a, a autonomous vehicle talk talk a bit about the the ethics behind it in terms of you know sometimes people get scared at like oh we can remove diseases, but that also means we can do lot, lots of other things um, as well, or, or will be able to in, in, the, in the future. And so they're, they're scared of the slippery slope. The Slopes are often, often slippery in the full context of time. So t- talk a little bit about some of the concerns you hear and, and h- how you address them.
1: Yeah. No, I think stigma when it comes to reproductive technology is massive, right? Like people were incredibly secretive, you know the first ivf babies they were just like absolutely didn't want anyone to know so yeah ivf was was you know something people are incredibly ashamed to do in the beginning and now it's been totally normalized which i think is awesome birth control was incredibly stigmatized when it first came out i think that um the first birth control um you know was just completely shut down it was marketed as um you know something that would help you know ease like menstrual cramps and then it was like side effect is that um you know you know you won't be able to uh, you know this the side effect is what was actually was was that okay you know this will lead so you, you can have more control over you know when you get pregnant but it was couldn't even be marketed uh, outwardly that way and that women uh, it, would, it was only then it was only allowed to married women and then married women had to have like the signature of their husband in order to use it so yeah reproductive technology it has always been uh hotly contested the stuff that we think is completely normal today was like fought for unfortunately um years or decades and is like still fought in certain places i mean we're seeing that now with the debates around um uh surrogacy i mean people are surrogacy is now under attack you know egg donor sperm donor all of these type of situations are under attack i personally know friends where you know there was a you know female partner um i know the female partner and she didn't want to use a um sperm donor database she wanted to use a friend who was a gay man and um because he was a gay man they were required to go through like extensive psychological screening to um you know allow that uh, embryo to be created when a she could just go get knocked up any night at a bar and b she could just buy any sperm that's available on a, you know, sperm donor website, but specifically because he was a gay man, you know, for whatever reason that triggered all this, you know, I I just find that incredibly condescending and sad that, you know, in 2023 in, in San Francisco, that type of stuff is still going on. So yeah, I think there's a huge amount of stigma around reproductive technology. And I think specifically, I mean, my stance around the ethics, I think I kind of already revealed, right. Which is that I think parents have an obligation to do everything that they can to have a healthy baby. And, you know, we see people doing that constantly, right? Like they're, you know, obsessed with how do I get my kid to the um, best schools? How do I give them, you know, the best food, all this stuff. And like, if you think about it, those are really marginal in terms of what, what effect that is going to have on the child's life compared to, you know, do they have a like lethal skeletal dysplasia? Do they have, are they born without a limb? Are they born with you know, really aggressive pediatric cancer. Like these are all things that parents can now know about and screen for before they're pregnant. And I don't know, I just personally, I feel super strongly about it. Like the idea, I think abortion is like a super um, hot and charged topic. I'm personally, you know, pro-choice. I think women should have the right to choose, but I personally wouldn't want to have to, you know, go through with an abortion. I think physically, it's just physically and emotionally, it's really, you know, tough on um, on, uh, your body. And I think that it's like a really... Exciting avenue to try to be able to avoid that, right, is that if you can screen for all these um, anomalies that could occur during a pregnancy, you can avoid a miscarriage, you can avoid having to, um, you know, terminate, um, you know, pregnancy that isn't going to actually come to term and avoid all of that psychological and physical, you know, harm to your body. Right. I mean, pregnancy is like just such an incredibly intense thing. Like it's literally the most metabolically intense thing any human, man or woman does. Right. So like your maximum metabolic rate is something like, um, I think 2.5 or something. And um, if you do a triathlon, if you do an ultra marathon, so not just a marathon, like an ultra marathon, like multiple days, um, you can only sustain that for, you know, something like, you know, 30 days or something like that. And that's like the like limit of like what the physical expenditure people do. And pregnant women do that for 180 days, right? It's like they are at the maximum metabolic limit for 180 days. And um, yeah, so I think like that's a huge investment, right? And that's just the beginning of the investment, right? Like you're going to raise that child for 18 years. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, if as a kid, I like, you know, felt you know, sad that my mom, you know, went through this thing that most people would say is super mild, right? Like, oh, she, you know, had normal vision for, you know, most of her life. And then only had this happen to her later, you know, I think that the amount of like love and care that a parent has is probably, you know, 10x, you know, what a, what a kid has, right? It's sort of like, they're like an extension of you. So yeah, for me personally, it's like, I would, yeah, I would like definitely want to make sure that I would, that I had that information you know, before pregnancy or before I had kids. And I think in terms of for other people, I think my general stance on it is just that you shouldn't dictate to other people what to do. Like they should have choice. Right. And so in terms of embryo screening, it's, I think it's a parent's right to have whatever information that they find um, useful. I think our responsibility as ORCID is to make sure that that information is is accurate, right? So we spent an enormous amount of time to make sure that this data is the highest quality data that you could possibly get. We spent an enormous amount of time curating the um, variants and the genes and the diseases that we include. These were only super serious and severe monogenic conditions that you know you definitely want to know about. The, you know the polygenic is is uh, kind of the best uh, scores that we could um, find and benchmark that work as well as possible across ancestries, and we want to make sure that that, that counseling is um, really comprehensive so people understand what's you know what data means what. Um, but I think that's kind of where Orchid or any company's responsibility sort of ends. is sort of like you should present the data as honestly as possible, and then the decision about what to do with that information or whether to even request that information I think is like fundamentally. A
2: parent's choice. Say more about the concern that some people have around sort of the, the Gattaca future where parents try to create their perfect perfect children.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I think it just depends what you des- what you define as um, perfect, right? I mean, I think that it's a insane upgrade to be able to have a healthy life, right? Like so many people's lives are, you know, they would self-describe as destroyed or derailed by, you know, some serious illness that they have. So- um, yeah, I think it just depends where, you know, where society draws that line, right? It's not really fundamentally, um, you know, Orchid's decision how to censor information. Like to me, like the motivation that I have and like what what I think is like a in- super exciting future is like one where, you know, pretty much um, anyone who wants to have a kid, regardless of what disease they have, their partner has, is able to have a kid and has um, the ability to, you know, have the best chance at-, at that. I think all this other stuff is like kind of noise and I hope it doesn't like you know, pull the field back, but um, like fundamentally it's not really ORCID or any individual's company decision, it's really a societal decision, right? Like, you know, we could choose to, you know, censor certain information that we think parents shouldn't be selecting on, Um, you know, plenty of countries have done that, um, with something with, with sex, right. So sex is reported on, on embryos in the U S and it's not reported on embryos, um, in China, India, and a bunch of other countries. So yeah, every society, every government can choose, you know, what information that it wants to provide parents and what, what information shouldn't be provided. And I don't know, again, my, my stance is, is just that, um, there's like so much benefit here on so much benefit, I think, in poll on the health side that, yeah, I think the other stuff is kind of you know, icing or just not as interesting. But what do you think?
2: One thing I think it's interesting is just that we're not willing to really be honest with ourselves in a number of ways. And ter- like take longevity, for example, we're like very interested in curing all sorts of diseases and all this money towards cancer or diabetes or, or you know, extending li- lifespan in all these sort of incremental ways. And then when a group of people, you know, suggest ways that we could sort of solve those problems more at the roots in a more fundamental way, and in a more perhaps effective way, people get terrified and 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 scared and think it's 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 some it's like, are we trying to expand lifespan or or are we not? <laughs> like at what point would we no longer be comfortable trying to do it in an incremental way? And it feels like here's just another version of that where of course people, you know, we want more healthy babies. And so what's the problem?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I think that there's like these really weird false dichotomies at play. People think that somehow you having a healthy baby damages them and their identity, right? Like I'm obviously super pro, like my mom's condition, like, you know, RP. I want there to be lots of therapies and lots of money poured into curing that, like for however many more years my mom gets to live. But that doesn't mean that my mom or me or anyone else really wants to have a child that's gonna go blind later, right? So I think there's this weird um, kind of like, um, uh, like limited thinking where if fewer babies with conditions are born, that's somehow gonna affect current people where, you know, where I think the opposite is actually true, right? Currently we're spending, currently we're wasting billions of dollars that that could be redirected, right? If, If the next generation is healthier and doesn't have these conditions, then we can put more money into, you know, developing cures for the people who are already available. So it's not the case that having less disease in the future somehow damages or diminishes people today. Um, so I think that's kind of like a weird false equivalency that um, happens that I think is weirdly is is actually very bizarre and sad, right? Because you'll actually see the advocacy groups like it would be like the American Cancer Society saying like, hey, let's have more cancer, right? So I think it it, it comes out of fear and it comes out of um, again stigma, right? People being worried that their identity is being stigmatized because um, you know parents are selecting to avoid that disease in the future, and I think that. I don't know. I just think it's a kind of weird and backwards, right? Like if a parent doesn't want their child to suffer in the same way that they do, you should let them. And um, I don't know, it just seems like I, I kind of feel really angry that people would, would want to limit a, a parent's ability to do that, right? Like, why would you dictate to me, no, your kid has to go blind. Like, that's insane. Like why? I, if I can do something to make that even 1% less likely, I should have the, have the right to do that. And everyone should have the right to do that.
2: My understanding is that like a hundred years ago, it was like a left wing thing to be into eugenics, or like the the idea that we can make better people. And I think it was like a left wing or progressive cause with the intent to help out um, sort of the worse off, like uh, and and their and their future kids. And they were seeing like growing inequality, and it was like, hey, we can we can make a difference here. And then I think World War Two really <laughs> Germany really just like ruined it for for everyone like in perpetuity because they saw sort of like someone tried to sort of, you know, eliminate, uh, or, or sort of like, you know, a race or, a couple of races of people, um, and thus anything that even has like the stench of trying to, um, sort of improve things sort of, uh, you know, at, at, birth, people get scared that that can be used in very hostile ways. Is that, is that your understanding too, or yeah. How do you react to that?
1: Yeah. I think I just like really strongly, and vigorously reject any association with that because I think it's actually fundamentally the exact opposite, right? So um, giving parents the ability to have this information um, is their choice. They choose whether or not they want to do IVF, they choose whether or not they want to have um, the information and they choose what they want to do with the information, right? And the people who stand to benefit the most are the most vulnerable, right? Like people like me or people who have any of these conditions, they're the ones who are freely choosing and electing, hey, I want to do this so that I can you know, improve the chance that my child isn't affected, which is the exact opposite motivation of, you know, a government coming in and basically deciding, hey, you're fit to reproduce or you're not fit to reproduce. You know, forced sterilization is literally the exact opposite of that. This type of service is saying, regardless of, you know, any health issue that you have, now you can choose to, you know, not pass that on or have the potential to not pass that on to your child. So it's like the exact, yes, basically, I think it's like this like really weird thing in society where like, I don't know, you just do this like nearest neighbor search and then you kind of like attach to all those random ideas without actually understanding like what is this this novel thing and how does it actually impact people? And I think that's um, weird. I mean, I think in one sense it's a really good impulse because obviously like babies and pregnant women are really vulnerable and they should be protected and there should be like intense interest on making sure all of that is as safe as possible. But um, I don't know, I think like this specific specter is like, just really depressing because they're they actually are coming from the exact opposite place. One is like government controlling what people do and saying who should and shouldn't have kids, and this and this is the exact opposite. It's saying that regardless of you know where um, you know where you're starting in terms of a specific condition, you should be able to choose and make every decision about and have like reproductive autonomy and reproductive choice. Um, so it's 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 actually very bizarre to me that they that they are lumped together when they're the exact opposite.
2: Yeah let's go beyond orchid and now now just talking like future speculation here let's say 30 years from now when our future kids will be having kids or maybe even 40 years from now like how are they going to have like where are the norms around having kids going to be is it going to be like radically different like sci-fi different like they have you know a ton of influence over uh the, the makeup of, of their kids even kind of beyond their own existing um, genes or is it like What do you, what do you think that might be like?
1: Uh, I hope it's way better. I mean, I think that it's, uh, yeah, I think reproductive technology has like kind of stalled, right there hasn't really been, I would say like a really big upgrade since IVF. I mean, you know, compare that to other fields where you see, I feel like a lot more interest, a lot more funding, a lot more progress. So yeah, I would really hope that there's like a lot of cool new stuff. I think like the two things that like, I'm personally like most excited about, I would say, are um, in vitro gametogenesis. So like making egg cells and, um, making egg cells and sperm cells from skin cells, so that would basically obviate the need for IVF to be invasive. You can kind of generate arbitrary number of um, eggs and and embryos. Um, so I think that's there's um, fortunately a couple of like pretty cool companies that are working on that, and I think hopefully like that'll be you know you know in market maybe in ten or so years. And then um, I think, yeah, artificial wombs is also like super cool, right? Like we were just talking about how like metabolic metabolically expensive pregnancy is and how, you know, women currently have to like kind of make this really difficult choice of like, when do they want to take that, you know, 9, 18, you know, however much time they want to spend, um, you know, bonding and, you know, doing all the, the baby stuff with versus, um, you know, working on their careers. And I think that, you know, if we can get artificial wombs um, online, I think that'll Um, you know, that'll help a lot of women. And again, it's not about saying that everyone has to use that or has to do IVG. It's just like creating more choice and more options uh, for people to have kids, right? Like we're currently in this state of population collapse, right? You know, I think South Korea has like one of the lowest fertility rates in the world. Their population is going to drop by like 40 or 50% because there's like, you know, I think it's like one or might even be below one, you know, baby being born per woman in, um, in South Korea. They spent like, think over 200 billion dollars trying to get that number up and it's like you know I mean it's not just reproductive technology that's leading to falling fertility rates but if that's any piece of it which I think most people would agree is at least some part of it um you know I think we should be uh making that whole process easier right like there's still people who die in childbirth like that sucks right like why don't we make that number zero there's still um, so many complications to, you know, both the, um, you know, person giving birth and to the baby that, um, yeah, know I just feel like it should be like the subject of like intense discussion. Right. I mean, how are all of the humans being created? Right. Like, don't we care about making sure that's, um, you know, it's like, yeah, it's just, it's just such a fundamental part of life, um, that, uh, you know, yeah, I, I hope there's like some sort of meme or just like uh, explosion in like interest and obsession with making it, um, with making it better. Right. I mean, everyone cares a lot about their kids and, um, hopefully cares a lot about the, the, um, you know, the humans making the kids too. So yeah, I hope, I hope that, that we continue to see like super impressive advancements, like in, in that whole space.
2: Yeah. Let, let's actually segue to population and, and sort of the state of fertility a little bit, because when people talk about why we're having less kids on average, some people, you know, mention uh, the cultural impacts. You know, just modernization. The opportunity cost is is much higher. Um, you know, women and and men can just have you know more fulfilling careers and, and don't need kids for the, for their careers. In fact, kids you know hold back their 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 livelihoods or economic livelihoods for first a certain number of years in ways that they don't in in developing countries or, or in the past. Um, so some point to you know cultural. Others point to technology as, as we were just talking about of, hey, you know, if, if there was better, if there was artificial wombs or if there was, uh, you know, better sort of uh, fertility technology across the board, maybe it'd be easier. Um, but some then, people then say, hey, it's not necessarily about having the kids. It's also about um, raising the kids and being able to to not only want to do that, that's a culture part, but also be able to afford to do it, like have, you know, uh, housing and schooling and all, all the things that are required to, to raise kids be not. Crazy, um, you know, expensive, and there are different countries that have tried to, you know, sort of increase uh, fertility rates in, in different ways, whether it's a tax uh, ad- credits or advantages, or uh, subsidizing some of these, um, you know, things like like daycare and and, and other uh, sort of economic gains uh, or economic needs. But it seems like they've had. Um, little impact in meaningfully increasing fertility. What is your reaction to some of these issues and some of these thoughts around, or what are some of the causes as to why we're having uh, fewer babies and what are ways in which uh, a society could meaningfully uh, increase that?
1: Yeah, I mean, for whatever reason, what's coming to mind right now is um, that uh, image on Twitter that's been circulating, which I think is from the Marriage Pact, which which is like this really funny graph, which shows how are people meeting? So it was, um, it kind of like compares all the old ways people used to meet, which is like through church or through friends or through school. And like all of those are crashing. And then like meeting online is like, you know, through the roof. And it's like basically how something absurd, like 80 or 90% of people are meeting. So I don't know, I just feel like these shifts somehow, some, somehow, just become a meme and like flip somehow, right? Like it used to be not even, I would say, 10 years ago, maybe like five or six years ago, it was like stigmatized to meet online. It was like, oh, like you can't meet people in person. Like, why are you so weird? Like, you know, and now it's the opposite. It's like, yeah, it's another uh, great
2: example of the, of the stigma shifting.
1: Yeah. And it's like, it just, it was just a complete flip. And like, I think you saw a similar thing with, um, you know, mined diamonds versus like lab grown diamonds, right? Like a few years ago, it was, um, you know, something like, like 90% of like loose diamond sales were, you know, mined diamonds. Right. And then there was all this like stuff around environmentalism. And it's like, oh my gosh, why would you want to mine? That's horrible. Like the lab grown ones are, you know, larger and more clear and all this stuff. And like, now I think, I think over the last three years, you've seen this like flip where it's like, I think something like 50, 50, like lab grown diamonds are now about to eclipse, uh, mined diamonds, um, in terms of, Uh, sales right it used to be the stigma of like oh well why like lab made is like somehow inferior right so i think that um yeah it's like a similar stigma i think with maybe um embryo screening and ivf like right now there might be this like oh you know that's too much information or whatever and then i think at some point there's just going to be this flip of like why would you not want to get that information why would you risk um these conditions and maybe it'll similarly be that way for babies right we're like for right now there's like some sort of meme going on that's like like having a child, you know, somehow like reduces your freedom or optionality or like people aren't meeting early enough or, or whatever it is like, I don't, I think, you know, maybe it, it is kind of interesting how it's so global, right? It's not just, I think that that part is pretty crazy. It's like now this meme has like spread everywhere um, except for like a small number of places. I think there's like some insane stat, I think of like Nigeria, I think is still at like six or seven um, kiddos per woman. And so like that, the population of Nigeria is going to which is like the size of like I don't know a very small fraction of the U.S. I think it's like you know maybe the size of like Texas or something. Is about to have like 300 not about but 300 million people are about to be um, you know exist in Nigeria because the, you know their you know population curve is just accelerating so much faster than um, the U.S.'s and it just it's kind of crazy right because we kind of like have all of our society built on this assumption that's false, that there's just going to be like infinite new babies born who are going to like be workers and like pay into the system. So I don't know. It's kind of crazy, right? Like you're, it is sort of a slow um, demographic shift, but you know, like populations like Japan, populations like the US, like you're like in not too long, you're going to see like 20 or 30% of people with dementia, right? Like that's insane. Like how do you have a, like I don't think our society could really hold together the way that it is right now with that fraction of people um, you know, with that level of, you know, mental, um, impairment, right? So I think that, I don't know, it's like, it's a crazy situation. I mean, I, I, I applaud what you're doing. You're doing your, your matchmaking stuff. So hopefully that helps people, more people get together and have babies. And I don't know how, how, what do you, what do you think people should do or society should do or what do you think's going on?
2: Let me tell the audience. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm working on this, uh, with, with a couple friends, this sort of matchmaking sort of, uh, pool, almost like a OG hinge of people just meeting via friends of friends um, and friends. And the irony is that uh, it feels like middle school where it's like a lot of people who know each other, but once they realize or know of each other, but once they realize that one other person, uh, that one of them likes each other, then they'll like them too. And so we're just like helping them realize that. Um, and it it shows to like, you know, uh, people are kind of just scared to <laughs> put themselves out there. Um,
1: I think it's a really amazing thing, by the way, just just to like... I don't know, be a little bit South Asian about this. Like in the South Asian community, I think there's like people feel bad for other people, right? Because in South Asians, it's like your parents, like your whole family is involved in like batch making you um, for better or for worse, right? So um, I don't know. I think the perspective from, you know, that community is like, oh my gosh, it's so lonely. It's so hard. Like you have to do it all by yourself. So to me, this is like a very obvious, amazing service, right? Like, you know, we need Eric and, um, you know, friends, matchmaking people. I feel like it's like, what brings you the most happiness in your life, right? It's like having an amazing partner, having an amazing family. So it's like, I don't know. I think that it's underrated and I think he deserves way more applause and, um, you know fanfare for this matchmaking stuff. Because literally even if even if one couple comes out of it, even if one baby, I mean that's amazing. Like that's like so cool.
2: Yeah. Well I heard if if I get three couples, then I go to Jewish heaven. Uh so that's uh that's that's enough motivation for me. Um but yeah no we're we're excited to to launch it um pretty pretty soon.
1: How are you matching people, by the way? I never asked that actually. What is the algorithm? Is it like, do you do interviews or like, how does it happen? No,
2: no, no, If it was a business, at some point we want to turn it into something that's more sustainable. Right now, it's literally just OG Hinge. We, we curate the people that come in and then we give them the, the, the sort of list of people who are, uh, who are in the community. And if they both like pick each other, then we match them over text. And we do it over text because we want to increase accountability. So like no one, no one can ghost. So if you're ghost, you get kicked out basically.
1: Nice. I like that. That's really good. That's really good.
2: So, and we give them when we have vouchers, so we give them like everyone is referred to either by us or someone else in the community and like why there's like higher context when you meet the people and there's like accountability via being part of the broader group.
1: So I feel like, I feel like the, the idea of exclusivity is really important for these matchmaking things. I feel like that like really changed things. So like how, Is that, is that hard? Are you disqualifying people and being like, sorry, you're not the right fit? Like, how do you do that?
2: Yes and no. I mean, once we're public, we're going to do it in, in in like a much at higher scale, but yeah, right now it's just, you have to be vouched for by someone in the, in the community and the, you know, people's vouch is kind of like on the line. So yeah, it's, there's a few people we've just had to give like a weird answer to like, Hey, get, get a vouch or that vouch isn't like good enough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you have to you have to lay down the law because these are you know people's lives are on the line. So that's yeah, convenient. exactly.
2: But at some point, there is someone for everybody. So at some point, we'll be able to do a better job of like tearing or whatever. But yeah, it is interesting.
1: Have you been surprised by the couples? Like, are you developing this intuition of like, ah, this is like the magnetism that like makes an amazing.
2: Well, I, I will say I'm a little white pilled. Like, I'm I, I, previously I was black pilled on, on on dating apps. I thought that because you see the stats and you're like, oh shit, a very small amount of men get all the way or get 80% of women or whatever. And like, you know, there's just like an insane power law. But actually, it's more diverse than I thought. Like people, not everybody has the same taste, which is something that I think most people intuitively think. But then if you study dating app data, you're like, wow, this doesn't look like that. But so, so far, I've been pleasantly surprised at how more people are willing to match with more people than than I thought or imagined. And that that is promising.
1: Yeah, I feel like everyone always has like their own insecurities and hangups, right? Like the engineer is like, oh my God, I really need like a sales person to be able to like sell my thing. Otherwise, no one's going to want it. And the salesperson is like, oh my God, I really wish I had an engineer to build my app. So I think it's the same thing. It's like, you know, we're all like sitting in our bubble. And we're like, no one's going to want to date me, but then they actually do. That's so good. I'm so glad to hear that. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. Like I have a few friends who are on it and I'm like, even surprised, they have way more interest than I would have imagined.
1: Oh, Vern, Vern, (laughs) that's so mean. You're like, I wasn't even going to let you on. I wasn't even going to be your bout. You had to get in through like a third person. It's amazing.
2: And a a lot of it's just asking people out or like, yeah, people want to be asked out, I guess, or or certainly women do. And men, you know, don't want to do all of it or not all men want. And so a lot of it is really just this like coordination challenge (laughs) where where someone's like, I would be interested if people do X, Y, Z action, you know, i.e. if the man is like more... F- forward, but the or, or whatever does it in the right way, but the man either doesn't want to do it or is scared to do it or doesn't know that it would be received well. People don't want to be rejected, right? So it's, um, it's a fun and this is why it's helpful to have p- other people involved in whether it's friends or families or whatever to like lubricate the interaction. No, you know, that was a bad, bad, uh, word to use, but <laughs> 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 in this instance, um, but yeah, I, I think, I mean. The broader thing around matching is just that like 60% of women are college students or whatever. And you know, women don't date down like a college educated woman isn't going to date a non college educated man, you know, kind of on a general to generalize. And so there's just like not enough men who meet meet women's standards. And so either women have to change those standards, that's not going to happen, or men have to like rise up and we have like an equality um, at the median, you know, um, but is that going to happen um, unless there's like social engineering? I, I don't see that happening or.
1: And you, so do you think the decline of men is real like that? All, all those headlines. Do you think it's true?
2: I, I think it's on the median level. It's, it's, it's happening. Not, uh, you know, men, Larry Summer said this like 10, 15 years ago, he got slaughtered for it, but he's like, men are at the top of society and are at the bottom of society. Like there's just way higher variance. Um, and so like men, you know, are CEOs of the companies, but they're also like, Um, in jail, (laughs) um, you know, they're also like the the people who are doing the absolute worst. And, but then also at the median level, it's, I mean, at the very least the college data is like hard to deny. And there's probably some like accompanying data around women who are college educated, not willing to date or marry someone, not willing to marry someone who's non-college educated, like on average or whatever. So I think the decline of men, like at, at some median or middle level is, is real. And I don't know. And, and women not dating down seems, seems real and, uh, seems reasonable. Um, if you're, you know, you want the best genes for your kid (laughs) to uh, bring it back full circle. Um, and so I don't, I don't necessarily know what to, to, to do about that, but that seems, that seem I mean, it, it, it does seem like, you know, seeing more women want to like raise kids with their friends or something, or even do the, like have kids with Elon or something like, uh, you like be willing to accept, And I mean, that as a metaphor, be willing to like, not need one stable father. Like, I wonder if that's going to be a more popular solution, like basically just what's happening on dating apps happening with having kids too, um, in that a fewer, you know, smaller percentage of men are having more of the kids. Like I'm actually surprised. Why doesn't Elon have like a hundred kids? Like he can afford it. It's like the biggest problem. Um, you know, he already has 10 or 13 or whatever it is. He's not going to spend enough time with them. Why not like make a statement and just have like a hundred Angus yeah. Khan style? What, what do you, what do you think about putting aside Elon? Like do, what do you, if, if you were someone who is dedicated to increasing the fertility rate is having dozens, like a insane idea.
1: I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I think people have like pr- usually pretty, st- like, strong opinions about how they want to raise their kids, right? People are, like, you know, if they were an only child, they're usually either, like, oh, yeah, that was great, or they're, like, I really wish I had a sibling, or if they're, you know, one of three, or if they're one of four, you know, they usually have, like, some reaction to how they were raised, and I think that probably, I think, for most people, having that many kids is, like, out of the bounds of, like, weirdness that they would want to uh, tolerate, but I don't know. I mean, you know, you have less parental love, but you have way more sibling love, so, like, I don't know. I think it, it might be... You know it might be you know hard to argue which setup is better i think that like there's people who've i think it's really just hard to like draw conclusions without having like way more specifics about like well how are you going to raise them, and like who are the parents and like you know are they you know how want are they doing it to like you know like, hold some like guinness book world record or are they doing it because they um you know they really like love kids and, like, want there to be more of them, right? Like, so, I don't know. It's a, it's hard to draw something specific. Do you, do you have, like, a specific number in mind? Or you're like, I want to have this many kids this way by this date. Like, do you have a timeline? Like, what are you doing to contribute to the fertility collapse problem? I know the matchmaking thing. Matchmaking is more than most other people are doing. And I want to, you know, help with that as much as possible. I think it's really cool. Um, but that's more of, like, a bucket list thing for me. Like, I feel like I would just feel so happy if I was responsible for even one marriage. I feel like that's just so cool. Like, all these you know, dating apps are like, they're literally reshaping the next generation, right? Like that chart shows it all, right? Like you see this massive, they're they are deciding the algorithm, they're deciding all the couples. But um, yeah, I don't know. But well, what do you think?
2: I mean, I'm, I'm probably gonna have like two or three kids. Uh, who, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll have more. Maybe I'll get inspired. I, I think the, I think, you know, Elon saying he's gonna, you know, that we need to have more kids, I think probably does move the culture. I mean, if Taylor Swift, you know, started having, you know, a bunch of kids, like, who knows how much that that can move the culture so like I, I think there is something cultural to like making it uh cool or desirable um to have more kids uh whether from like a lifestyle perspective or just like future of humanity perspective like all the people who are concerned about existential risk or concerned about um technological innovation or concerned about just like the future in any level i mean there's nothing more like fundamental to the future than like yeah so- i think
1: i've heard heard a lot of parents say this that basically once you have kids you can't give up on the future because you like have this thing that you care about more than yourself. That's like going to go into the future. And I think that's like a, you know, I don't have kids yet, but, um, I think it's like a really interesting, like worldview perspective, right? Of Like, you know, maybe, you know, if if you're just going to, if you, if you know that you're, you're, this is how much time you have, you you know, that's kind of what your horizon is. So like, you know, I don't know. Have you seen that with your friends who have kids? Like, they, you really feel like they're become more optimistic, or they've they've really you've really seen that worldview shift in them as they've as they've become parents.
2: Yeah, I mean, they they think much more on a longer t- t- time duration, and then just they start to care about sort of you know kids just m- much more, or like how their kids are going to be impacted by, by by certain things. So there is an argument that people who have more kids should have like more say in. Sort of like voting or something, and I'm I'm like, reasonable at a high level. I'm like sympathetic to that idea of like if someone's got five kids versus someone who's got no kids. Like those people just have a different stake in our in our society. I, I don't know how you operationalize that or, or if that makes sense. But there, there's there's something intuitive level.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely something that people are currently angry about. Where you know you know everyone who's currently running the U.S. is so out of touch with you know what the what the needs of a young person are they have no idea how much it you know they they already bought their house they've had it for 30 years it's like appreciated or or, or whatever um yeah i don't know how do you think that like society is going to cope with um an aging population if people don't have kids right like what do you i mean i, I feel like there's already been this like huge re- rejection and like animosity toward yeah it's just the fact that like the the average age of so many of our representatives is like so much higher than the average age.
2: I'll get to that question in a second. But the the counter to the sort of fertility concerns are like, if I talk to my AI or bullish AI friends, and they're like, hey, like, your concerns around what it means for the economy, if we have less people under a world of, you know, super advanced AI are misplaced, because in fact, there's actually way less for people to do in the first place. So right, you know, the initial concern is, hey, we don't have enough." Um, people to to make stuff or sell stuff to, but in a in a world of kind of runaway automation, the concern, the stigma will flip, so to speak. The concern will flip to be like, what do all these people do? We actually need to fi- make work for them, um, and maybe fewer people like uh, alleviates that that burden of like having a make work society.
1: That's a, that's a really interesting take, though, right? Because I feel like you know it used to be that everyone was farming, right? Like the only thing we could do, like we couldn't even you know, make enough food, right? And then it wasn't that we said, oh, let's make work, right? It's like, we just like invented all these new industries, right? So I don't know, do you think that basically people are just gonna start twiddling their thumbs and be like, hey, I mean, cause think about how much bullshit work people do. I mean, there's like, this meme has been going on for so long of like bullshit jobs, right? If all that went away, I feel like there's still, like, you know what I mean? How much do people self report that like their day goes the way that they want? Maybe they'll say 5% or 10% or 50%, right? If they could just get that much more Done of that much more of like this is like the highest quality. I, I don't know. Do, do you do you, just, do you think that's naive? And like, no, no. no. I,
2: I think the the counter to what I, the counter to what I just said is that bullshit jobs are but like by definition non-automatable because they 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 are bullshit to begin with. Like they're make work, so we're already making work for them. So so like we're not going to just replace them with better technology because we could replace them today if we wanted. Like we're sort of like
1: oh okay so i think those those might be two different things right there's i think there's bullshit jobs in the sense that there are fake jobs that don't need to exist but i guess what i was talking about was bullshit jobs in the sense that so much of your day is bullshit and you would love to automate that and then do more so yes i totally agree like we could just cut all the bullshit jobs those people that is like fake work but i would say i don't know i i think there's a lot of people who just have a lot of part of their day that they feel like is drudgery that they would love to automate i don't know do you that's not true
2: no, no, I do. I, 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 do think that's true, and and some of those people will be empowered and enabled and have more fulfilling lives because of that. Some percentage of those people will be fired or not hired, uh, you know, in the future, company uh, for that same role, and will need to sort of reinvent themselves. Um, yeah, I, I tend to to believe that humans will continue to 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 reinvent ourselves to you know we will in the good way. We will like make work that will add value to people that people will pay for. And maybe over, it just continues to be things that AI doesn't do as well. And and part of that is just actually just be a human. Like people want things made by humans, done by humans. Um, like we're not going to you know put every service that a human does to uh, to to AI um, just because it's, it's it's AI. We actually want it done by a human, even if it's done quote unquote worse just to some degree. So I th- I think humans will still have things to do. At the same time, it might uh, reduce the pressure of not having as many people like Robin Hanson's been writing a lot about how he thinks like a dark age is inevitable um, because the fertility collapse is inevitable. And I'm not sure um, in a super advanced AI world that um, sort of economic collapse is inevitable with fewer people, but those people for whom do exist, I think we will find valuable things for them to do and hopefully fulfilling things to do. So that's why I go back and forth as to how much time or energy should I spend thinking about um, like, or prioritize fertility um, collapse above other problems or even above AI itself. Um, If I was like solely focused on on sort of like the future and where things are going, I I don't really know how to, um, like AI presents a complicating factor for me to think about the like negative effects of fertility collapse. Because if if AI wasn't in the picture, then shouldn't like everyone just be focused on fertility collapse, like shouldn't we just like, when we think, Hey, there's like a guaranteed dark age coming, unless we change something. And then like, we need to do, do that now. W- what else are we focused on? Why are we focused on uh, any other sort of future technology or, a- or outcome that's independent of that challenging thoughts here?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I think the thing that, so if the one thing that I think is really cool and crazy about it's just that I feel like it's so unpredictable. Like, it just seems like, you know, th- no one has a, like a lot of conviction about a specific feature scenario. Like almost anything could happen, right? Like, you know, we're kind of like spitballing here and sort of, you know, it's impossible to say like which, which thing will be true. Um, I think just like from the emerging data, some of the stuff that I think is a little scary that uh, I hope isn't true is it seems like there's like a really bimodal distribution where like basically the impact of having all of these like superpowers resources really early in your education is that some people are like super empowered. There's like this like some percentage of, of kids who are like, you know, destroying every like software engineer at Google and like have like these companies that like a company of one person that's like making all this money or whatever. Um, or just, you know, just bulldozing whatever their creative pursuit is. They like made a movie with like a tiny shoestring budget. That's like really impressive. Um, so I think you see uh, a bunch of those, but then you also see, you know, like really, really bad like math and science and reading and just like all of those like core test scores that, you know, hey, people have like, you know, an LLM tutor, like the best, most personalized tutor ever, Um, Wikipedia, all these different, you know, services growing up that, you know, people, you know, 20 years ago didn't have access to. Why is it that they're doing worse and have less resilience on these um, tests? I think that's a little bit scary because you already see that there's like a whole generation that might be like too reliant on technology and like, isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily have the things that are super important, like grit or persistence or creativity, because they've just never had, they've always had this instant answer that they just, you know, believed was for sure, you know, not as much skepticism as people who had to deal with like all the shittier versions. So I don't know. Do you think that that's true or that's just like hype? I feel like, you know, they always are like, oh, the, you know, this next generation, there's always this like, you know, catastrophizing of of the, of a, Whatever generation is new or whatever's going on that's new
2: i I think there are elements of it that are true in that you know certain skills or um you know sort of personality traits either don't get get underdeveloped or don't get developed at at all at the same time, I think others um get more strengthened in terms of um you know maybe something like you know memory gets weaker because we don't have to memorize things anymore, but maybe creativity gets stronger because sort of like we can remix things so much better it's sort of like sort of our understanding of like breath gets bigger because there's so much where, or like our ability to, you know, uh, sort of intake information, uh, connect it to other information, make sense of it, uh, remix it, amplify it. And so I think something is always lost and something is always gained. It just evolved.
1: Yeah, yeah. I feel like the um, most extreme example of that, of like the whole like underdeveloped and overdeveloped thing is basically how sometimes people celebrate these like, Super pathological and traumatic childhoods of founders, right? Like, you know, Elon was like really famously, you know, like really bullied, and, you know, a lot of like really successful founders were. And it's like, well, they just got used to like their life being really hard from like birth. So then that, so then starting companies became easy because it wasn't any change, right? It's like, you know, when you're, you know, starting something from scratch, building a new market, building a pr- new product, it's like, you know, constant pain and suffering, and like just glimmers of, of um, you know, hope, and basically you, ha- you you know, there's almost this like weird cultishness and and um, you know, support of trauma because it basically makes it so that people can create these amazing empires, right? Like sometimes I feel like the, um, I don't know, I feel like the, so- sometimes like the, the unhealthy view that is propagated is like, well, if you just were like well loved and like had a happy. Uh, well-adjusted childhood you don't have enough of a chip on your shoulder you don't have enough of an insecurity you don't have enough of a pain tolerance to make anything truly new and exceptional because the only people who want to do that like you know have something to to prove um or just are, are used to you know not being satisfied and like you know you know what i mean so i feel like i don't know how much truth do you think, do you think there is to that like do you feel like you have to be discontent to to, to like make something great. Um, do you think you have to like? Are you going to make your child's like like childhood like purposefully really hard? or Are you going to make it?
2: I think there's higher variance there. I, I think it is probably a commonality among the the Jeff Bezos or the Elons or the the people who are at the top of our society that there was this massive chip on their shoulders since birth. I also think if you compare the people who had this massive chip on their shoulder from birth and the people who, who were raised in you know happy and healthy childhood, secure childhoods without the massive chip, I I think there's a higher percentage of like outliers on the ship on the shoulder, but also I think on the average, they're probably doing a lot worse or or, or some level of work. So I, I think it's just like higher variance in, in, in both. And um,
1: what, does that, what does that mean for your strategy? What is your specific, you, you take that information and what are you going to do personally? Cause I feel like that, that really says, says what you really believe.
2: Yeah. I, I think I'd probably um, settle for a, a happy, healthy kid who has <laughs> <laughs> isn't is the next elon with, with the risk of course that he's like uh because you know if you try to have the next if you try to have a chip in the shoulder with your kid like that could really backfire it's probably li- likely to backfire or uh, what, what do you think
1: i don't know it's really hard I, I always feel like it's just like it's like a really intense uh response to how you were raised like i think i don't know i was really lucky in the sense that i think i'm one of these weird people who is like overloved by their parents like literally just like suffocated and loved so much and I actually am like dude I kind of wish I had a little bit of a longer leash you know <laughs> like I, like my parents were like uh or like so obsessive and like loving that that like I wanted to go to like a um, you know just like a summer camp for a few weeks like literally like nanotechnology, technology like the most nerdiest possible camp and they were like oh my god you have to go to UPenn for two weeks or three weeks like that's so long we're gonna miss you too much like say no you know what I mean so I think um, yeah, I know it's, it's all, it's all very cute, but as a, teen, you know, whatever, 12 year old, you're just like, Oh my God, this is like the coolest thing ever. Why are, you know, it's so lame to like stay at home with my parents. Right. I don't know. I, th- I just think so much of it is just a response to your own childhood. So, but how much you, of it do you think is like nature nurture? Is it like, yeah. Well, what, what would be the, the percentage that you would, you would I'm just guessing uh, 75
2: to? nature, 25 nurture. I, I'm kind of just, I'm just, I just threw out a number out. I think it's like slightly more nature than nurture, but I, I don't have a sophisticated understanding of, of, of that.
1: Oh, okay, wow. Okay, you're you're pretty wise. I feel like usually when I just ask the pa- the question to people who don't have kids, they'll say it's like, you know, 50-50, you know, nature nurture and then What, you what do you think to, it is? I think it's like closer to yeah, 75-25. So 75 nature, 25 nurture. But um basically what I've seen really uniformly is that if you ask parents, you know, if they have like one, you know, two or, you know, more than that many kids, parents never say 50 50. They're like almost always like something above 70. They're like 80 20 or like 90 10 because they've just seen this little human and they're like what this human has like all of these preferences and this human has all of these preferences and like I fed them the same and like loved them the same and they're just like shocked by how different the personalities and the preferences are ingrained um so young. So I think I don't know some uh, people who are parents have said that they find that realization really freeing because they're like you know, maybe it doesn't matter how they parent them, right? It doesn't matter if they love them a lot or love them a little bit, like, or you know, they, um, you know, really pressure them to like play piano or you know, pressure them to be like a physicist or whatever. It's like they're already who they are, and you know, you're kind of just along for the ride. So, um, I don't know. I don't know which. I don't know which one is is true. What the right, what the right way to be is, but I just that's kind of like the observation that um, you know I've been hearing that I that I think is um, yeah another thing that I think is like really cool part about being a parent is that like it just totally shifts your perspective because your personal experience with like seeing like the human mind come online and like a personality get formed is like, you know, you see that first person with, with someone that you see, you see yourself in that person. You're like, oh, okay. Like that's, you know, there's, there was like someone who I was talking to recently and they, they could tell that their child was like excited about something that they were too. And um, again, that's like really hard, right? Cause in nature and nature, were they exposed to it or was it um, just something that they had a natural um, inclination or aptitude
2: or whatever for? Maybe we could wrap with, when you just give a little bit more details about how actually the the test works for parents who are listening in and wanna wanna try ORCID. W- w- what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so ORCID is available um, nationwide. So pretty much every major city, you can get access to ORCID, which is the uh, world's first whole genome sequencing for embryos. So you can get... Access to 100 times the data and um, many more monogenic and polygenic diseases, and the way that you get access to it is you can go to our website, uh, you know, OrchidHealth.com. Uh, you can do some basically meet with our genetic counselor who can talk to you about. Um, here's some of our uh, preferred IVF centers that we've already onboarded that you know work in a lot of these um, major cities, and then um, you can go basically get set up. Uh, that route at, a, at an IVF center that we've already onboarded. And then alternatively, if you're like in love with a specific IVF doctor or center, um, if you just give us, you know, about you know two to three week heads up, we can kind of get them onboarded and, and, and um, queued up to uh, work with us as well. Um, so yeah, mechanically, the, the way that it works is exactly the same in terms of IV, the IVF side. The IVF side is exactly the same process. The difference is just that you get Way more information um, about your about your embryos and that genetic report at the end.
2: Perfect, uh, Nora. Thanks so much for for coming on the podcast and sharing uh, the the future that you're bringing with uh, with Orchid and letting us uh, be a- along for the ride.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is amazing. It's so fun to uh, talk about so many different aspects of parenting and matchmaking and fertility collapse. And um, yeah, I learned a lot. It's amazing.
0: Upstream with Eric Tornberg is a show from Turpentine, the podcast network behind Moment of Zen and Cognitive Revolution. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store.